Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Are you ready for season three of Discography? We're jumping into the deep end of The Who. Not only will we go through every Studio Who album in great detail, but their story is often told between albums, so we'll be touching on non-album singles, the solo works of Keith Moon, John Entwistle, Roger Daltrey, and Pete Townsend, and some of the events that would make a record begin as a concept and land as something that would universally change the world. Discography returns to Consequence Podcast Network in January of 2019. Until then, be lucky. Consequence Podcast Network. This is The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. This series is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony, where we open the vault to talk about a classic record upon its re-release, delving into its inner workings and lasting impact. This season, we're journeying into the Jimi Hendrix Experience's 1968 album, Electric Ladyland. I'm your host, Ernest Wilkins. Happy to be here to immerse myself in this incredible album with you, but I'm sad to be taking over hosting duties for the amazing Paola Mejia. It's a hard act to follow, but fortunately, I won't have to do it alone. This episode, I'm joined by music critics Corbin Reif and Dan Hyman to unpack the mythology surrounding Electric Ladyland and the man himself, the brilliant, the deified, Jimi Hendrix. Before we begin, there's a lot that could be and should be said about Hendrix and what led him to this point, his final and arguably greatest album. He's everywhere. I mean, between the oversaturation of his biggest songs and the somewhat Cliff's Notes version of his legend, time has managed to mask the finer details of his story and sound. So if your experience begins and ends at Jimi Hendrix's greatest hits, don't you worry. We're going to give you a very quick catch up and we'll, I don't know, we'll call it everything you need to know about Jimi Hendrix in under a minute. Get your stopwatch ready, okay? 
Depending on who you ask and what day it is, Jimi Hendrix is either the most influential guitarist in history or one of the only names that truly deserves to be in the consideration. After a brief stint in the military, Hendrix played backup for a host of legends from Little Richard to the Isley Brothers to Sam Cooke. He found a manager, assembled a band, and dropped two big records, 1967's Are You Experienced and 1968's Axes Bold as Love. Later on in 1968, things change a little bit. Hendrix decides he wants to be his own boss. He moves back to the States, he ditches his manager, he gets estranged from his band, and decides to take a cinematic approach to creating his next album, Electric Ladyland. This has been everything you needed to know about Jimi Hendrix in under a minute. Now it's time to get into the fun stuff. Let's get the band together. Hey, I'm Corbin Reef. I'm a music writer, contributor to Billboard, Rolling Stone, amongst other places. My first book is called Lighters in the Sky. It's an overview of the greatest concert of all time. I'm currently working on my next book, uh, a biography of Chris Cornell titled Total Fucking Godhead. I'm Dan Hyman. I'm a Chicago-based freelance writer, uh, contributor to Esquire, New York Times, Rolling Stone. In this first episode, we're discussing the distinctive culture surrounding Hendrix in the wake of his untimely passing. Electric Ladyland is his final statement, his opus, if you will. <laughs> See what I did there? That statement has since led to an acclaimed, if not confounding, legacy that has sent critics and fans into a religious fervor. But just like every god has an origin story, so does every follower, which is why we asked our panel to share how they joined the Church of Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix has kind of always been in the ether. He's Jimi Hendrix. He's like God. He just exists. His music, I was introduced Christmas. I think I was a freshman in high school. I don't remember what year it was. My aunt gave me a bunch of CDs for Christmas. And one of them, oddly, was uh, Jimi Hendrix's Live at Berkeley album. I guess it was just out at that time. It's a really weird album to be introduced to Jimi Hendrix's music. But I played it on my little purple disc man and was obsessed. Got the purple box. Again, an odd introduction to Hendrix's all outtakes and alternate takes and weird stuff. And I just kind of got obsessed with his music from that introduction. And it just kind of rolled on from there. You know, interviewing people who knew him over the years. Talked to Eddie Kramer, his engineer, a couple times. And so, I mean, yeah, he's just one of those people. One of those artists who just, you know, you just gravitate to. For me, it was always a little interesting because my dad is very much, uh, I guess you could say classic, but more like blues rock kind of fan. And, you know, driving around with him as a kid is where I think really when I look back at it, that's where my formative musical tastes kind of came from. And for some reason with Hendrix, Jimmy was looked at as like almost a secret. If you want the good stuff, this is what it really is. And I think he kind of at that time felt like I wouldn't get it quite yet. And so it was just kind of a slow drip sort of thing where he, you know, would obviously start with some of the songs, you know, the more popular ones, Fire, Purple Haze, Hey Joe. And it was then a kind of he passed the torch on to me if I wanted to reignite the conversation as I got older and I started discovering more Hendrix, listening to more of the singles, then obviously getting into, you know, the albums like Electric Ladyland. And that's when we started having these conversations as I got older into my teenage years. From there, it was just kind of... He's there and his music, it's the interesting thing about a legacy artist, and it's no disrespect to call them that, their music is just omnipresent. And you kind of have to make the determination yourself whether you want to continue revisiting it or, uh, you know, view it as something that was in the past. How were you both introduced to Electric Ladyland? That's a tough one to really pinpoint because, you know, I grew up in the era of like CDRs. You download it, you you find the best songs, you put it on a CD, throw it in the car, and then I just can't ro- rotate through it. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, albums are a statement. They're supposed to mean something. They're supposed to convey a time period or a frame of mind. And I'm not really sure, like, when Electric Ladyland hit. 
It's my favorite Hendrix album. I just feel like it's the boldest expression of what he was going after. You know, the, the first two albums are like English albums. And I feel like Electric Laneway him coming home, having the time to really dedicate into the studio and really be himself, expand on this creativity, these, the sci-fi influences, you know, that there's these things, these, these touchstones of Hendrix where he's like 1983, where he goes on for an entire side of an album with this suite that could be like an album within an album, this entire universe of world. He drops out a guitar for like two minutes in that song. There's no limits. There's no Chaz Chandler as you're saying, we need the pop single, we need the pop single. Mm-hmm. You can go on Voodoo Child for 15 minutes long, which is my favorite song on that album because you can just vibe to it. Once I realized, like, oh, this is a sophisticated artist, you know, doing sophisticated shit, like, that's kind of where I really embraced him. This is his Sgt. Pepper in my eyes. I think a lot of people fall into different camps with a lot of artists, but Hendrix in particular, you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of people that don't view him from the standpoint, and I don't think this is a proper view, of his songs. This is actually, you know, something that we're dealing with a lot today is, like, you know, the true value of an album as a statement. And so with Hendrix, Ladyland is my favorite statement. You know, if you want to look at like a widescreen approach of who Hendrix was as a musician, what his viewpoint was, there's no better place to go than Ladyland. The issue becomes there are some songs on Are You Experienced and Axis that are just so powerful and have just become almost embedded into pop culture that that for a lot of people becomes what they think of as Jimi Hendrix. I guess my point being is that Ladyland, if you're looking from a musical perspective and you want to know who Jimi Hendrix was as a musician, what his POV was, kind of what were his ambitions, Ladyland is, you know, the be all end all. What's the other style? Talking about the aesthetic of Jimi Hendrix, once a rock star enters that level of transcendence where, you know, you're a household name, you're on T-shirts, whatever, what have you, you lose a bit of the mystique around them because you just know it as this is gospel. Jimi Hendrix is great. The Beatles are great. Rolling Stones are great. And you don't question it. You just kind of do your thing. And you discover why people tell you that, you know, as you age. But, you know, the first experience a lot of people have of getting introduced to Jimi Hendrix, you know, unless your parents played it for you, is like you're in some college dorm room and there's a poster on the wall. How important is Jimi Hendrix's image to his overall legend? Important, absolutely, because Jimi, for better or worse, has become a signifier of cool kind of rock star mystique i mean he's obviously at a mythic level and and you know some of that could be attributed to the fact that he died very young and so as has been pointed out many times like the cobains you know cemented in time at this certain level he didn't have his 65 year old album to make like eric clapton you know that people can kind of look at it and, and scoff at i think the thing is with jimmy is that I I hate using comparisons like in sports and music, but it's almost he's become undisputed in some people's eyes as the greatest. And whether or not that is true or not, it's besides the point. Mm. And when people talk about greatest guitarists of all time, it's like, 
well, there's Jimmy and then who else? Who's next? And, you know, people, I said sports because people talk about Michael Jordan. I think the difference, obviously, is music is far more subjective. You know, there's not statistics like there are in sports to kind of compare musicians by. But this idea that, oh, well, Jimmy is a god, a guitar god, you're never going to reach that level. It almost sets future musicians and guitarists up for this unattainable standard because you're trying to reach a level that's been created not necessarily by the music, but by the mystique created around the music. Uh, obviously, you need to have the music to back it up or this mystique would die out. Jimi Hendrix checks every single rock star box that you want to check. I mean, if an alien came down and was like, what is a rock star? I think Jimi Hendrix is the guy you choose to show. He, yeah. he lived fast. He died young. He had this backstory. He was in the army. He had a, a rough childhood. He performed with all of these people before he was famous, Little Richard, James Brown. Like He, he moved to New York, got discovered by a, the girlfriend of a Rolling Stone, went to London, psychedelic drugs, crazy outfits, unbelievable music. I mean, there's every single box you want to check for what a rock star is, what cool is. Jimi Hendrix was that. So, I mean, the music is obviously transcendent. I mean, listen to anyone else's take on Little Wing. It, it sounds nothing like the, the power and emotion of that two-and-a-half-minute version that Jimi Hendrix did. Stevie Ray Vaughan, even, it's great, but it's not Jimi Hendrix. It's Eric Clapton, it's blocky. It's not Jimi Hendrix. Like, here was a style and an essence to him that was beyond a lot of his peers. Like, the fluidity of his playing, the largeness of his thumb to be able to do dexterous moves and stuff. The talent was there. But he also had this effervescent cool. He slept with a lot of women. Like, everything you want from a rock star, like, you look up, like, that is an amazing mm -hmm. human being. Like you can understand why even if a young 20 something kid doesn't identify with, you know, blues music or whatever, like they still think Jimi Hendrix is the shit. Something I found so fascinating is that the other guys in the experience, you know, Ladyland kind of was the beginning of the end in terms of um, their falling out. And I think a lot of that from everything I've read and in interviews I've heard came down to Jimmy almost wanting this party around him at all times from everything that I gather the studio was the jam session. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. you know, he'd go to this place, the scene down the street, bring back musicians. The studio became less about doing work and more about partying according to the other members. And that's, you know, kind of their take on it. The reason I bring that up is because when somebody like Jimmy became this icon, literally, you know, seemingly overnight within a year or two, how much, you know, he kind of had to buy into this idea that he signified the rock star. Obviously, we'll never know that. But it's just something I've been thinking about as I was reading about this is kind of what was going through someone's mind when they truly did ascend that fast and kind of signified this idea of a rock star that in the late 60s, I mean, that was the pinnacle of what you wanted to be if you were, you know, a 14-year-old kid. You wanted to be Jimmy. Right. I mean, Paul McCartney still plays Foxy Lady in concerts. It gets a huge pop every time when he tells a story about playing Jimmy Hendrix learned Sgt. Pepper. Like, if Paul McCartney's going to you for some cool shine, yeah. like that, that means something. If you worked in music long enough, you've heard some horror story about an artist who wanted to be their own producer and turned out a pretty terrible <laughs> result. Somehow, Hendrix managed to avoid that cliche. Why do you think that was? I think if you look at the time going on, you know, what was happening around that time, and I think that he was smart to identify that the album format was taking over. Like Pet Sounds, Sgt. Pepper had come out in 1967. He understood that there was a change 
and the dynamic. You know, he, he was a huge Bob Dylan fan. Like, he, he bringing it all back home, Highway 61, he covers, you know, all along the Watchtower on this album. He understands that the album is a statement, means more now than ever. I and mean, that's why he pushes Chaz Chandler out. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to push forward in different sounds. Like, the third side of the album is crazy. Like, 1983, that whole suite of songs, that wouldn't have happened a year before. He went into it wanting to make a double album. There was a clear sense in his mind, like, I want to stuff as much music in this thing as I possibly can and give people their bang for their buck and really be someone serious, not just be someone, you know, singles oriented and bring in, you know, people who are under contract. The way he looked at things, too, I mean, you can debate whether you had synesthesia or not, where you could see colors, but like the album is produced and directed by Jimi Hendrix. Like there was a vision in his mind and a meticulousness, like 50 takes of Crosstown Traffic. Like, you know, there was an outset of like, even if it seemed loose and it seemed there was a party going on, there still was a direction in his mind of like Eddie Kramer going to spend 18 hours mixing the third side of the album. Organized chaos. Exactly. It's clear Hendrix, he had proven himself over the first two albums that, you know, he can make hits. Even if, uh, you know, FM radio was still kind of underground at that time, you wanted me to give something that's going to appeal to the masses. I can obviously do that. Ladyland for him was, I think, his chance. He felt like, you know, I've earned you money as a record label. Let me do my thing. Did that always sit well in terms with his collaborators? Clearly not. You know, some of his... uh, Bandmates like, uh, you know, Mitch Mitchell, I think, 50 takes of a song. That didn't always sit well, but that was a perfectionism that Jimmy clearly had because he felt like this was his opportunity. If there's a criticism, I guess it could be that there's a little bit of self-indulgence on this album. Some of the reviews at the time that I've gone back and read said that it's a little bit all over the place. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think the reason that people felt that way is because Jimmy felt like he was going to try to show his entire range and flex his muscle and say, you know what, if you truly want to see who I am as a musician, this is the album you got to put on. I mean, you talk about songs like Voodoo Child, uh, 83, those songs in themselves are mini sweets. They're almost like a movie within a movie. I would have to imagine that when he's recording those songs, going through the process of plotting them out in his mind, he had clearly a very specific vision sonically of what he wanted those to sound like. And, you know, some of the best artists, they don't want to compromise. And so the the reality is that he clearly had earned that sort of respect and that sort of autonomy that at that point in his career, he probably said, you know what, (laughs) I'm the shit. He was feeling himself. We can get into the weeds about Hendrix as a guitar player, Hendrix as a singer. Like, he didn't like his own voice. I mean, I think his voice is beautiful. The way he played guitar, I mean, it's just so unlike the way anybody else ever played guitar. The, the fluidity. He's not playing block chords when he's playing. He's playing around with chords. He's singing at the same time, doing all these different melodies, these crazy combinations. And it's influenced so many different people. And it wasn't like that at the time. I mean, like, this is groundbreaking music. I mean, even, uh, you know, going back from Axis Bold as Love to this album is is so 
completely different texturally, sonically, the influences, his influences in terms of science fiction. A lot of the lyrics are incomprehensible. I mean, like, they don't make sense, but it doesn't matter because they sound good. Like, it's just a vibe. It's a feeling. You could put it on and you just kind of drift away. It's an amazing accomplishment sonically. It's an amazing statement from an artist who is finally figuring out who he was. Hendrix said, it wasn't just slapped together. Every little thing you hear means something. And when someone says that about their own album, like how many times can you go back and try to figure out what means what? I mean, that's, there's, there's so much wealth of there there to revisit. So you could project a lot onto it too. You know, like, where's this kind of going to go next? I mean, that's the perennial question with Hendrix. But I mean, this album gives you so many different doorways in terms of, you know, what he could have done and where music could go. It's just a mind-blowing piece of art. The one thing that really struck me um, as I started to think more and more about this album in particular is the idea that when we think of Hendrix now, for better or worse, you think of kind of this virtuoso guitarist who could shred. I mean, I talked to my dad when I told him I was doing this, and he talked about how when he watched the Woodstock film, you know, he was probably like 20 years old or 18 or something, and it just blew his mind with the Star Spangled Banner and, and you know, all the effects he was kind of creating. My dad talked about it sounded like there was jet planes and, and all this stuff, and, and that's great, and that's amazing, and that's how people think of him as this absolutely mind-blowing guitarist. But when you listen to Electric Ladyland, you hear that at his heart and soul, he was a, a blues man. He was a soul singer. And I think that's something that gets lost a lot in the conversation around Hendrix. You listen to a song like uh, Burning the Midnight Lamp, even Gypsy Eyes. These are songs that have so much soul. I mean, Voodoo Child obviously is directly influenced by his love of Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson. I guess my point just being is there's a lot more to Hendrix than the cover might suggest. And so I think uh, this album helps paint that picture in a more full way. I remember the first time I saw you The tears in your eyes were like a This is part one of a four-part series, and we're just scratching the surface of the expansive world that is Electric Ladyland. We're coming at you weekly, so be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast platform. Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, Stitcher. I mean, you can find us anywhere. If you're looking to just listen to the album itself, Electric Ladyland is currently available to stream on Spotify and Apple Music. The new 50th anniversary box set from Sony is also out right now and features a completely new remaster from the original analog tapes, in addition to three albums worth of unreleased material, from rare demos to alternate versions to an entire live album that finds Hendrix conquering the legendary Hollywood Bowl. And if that's not even enough Hendrix for you, head to Consequence of Sound, where you can find several editorials on the Guitar Maestro. If you want to reach out and share your thoughts on the album and our discussions here, please do. You can find The Opus on Facebook at The Opus CPN and me on Twitter at Ernest Wilkins. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. We'd love to know what you think of the show and if you dig what we're doing here. Apple Podcasts is a great way to get the word out and Podchaser is a platform built for podcast discovery. So you can even go even deeper. Rating and reviewing not just a series on the whole, but specific episodes. I am really, really happy that you joined me today. I'll see you in episode two. The Opus is written by Ernest Wilkins and recorded in beautiful Chicago, Illinois at Consequence of Sound by Michael Rothman. It's edited and produced by Cap Blacker. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Find more jams at coachhop.bandcap.com. And our series artwork is by Stephen Fish.
Consequence Podcast Network. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. And fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off-limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. 